Um, so yeah, I'm here to talk to you about nothing. Um, as silly as that sounds, I really hope that this talk is useful to you, um, sincerely. So um, I'm going to start off by just mentioning that this talk is, is grounded in a specific place, um, and that's the Morikam Amphitheater of Roses in Oakland, California, which is where I'm from. Um, and that's partly because I wrote a lot of this talk in the garden, um, but also as I was writing it, I realized that certain things about the garden um, encompass all of the things that I'm going to talk about, um, which are um, the architecture of nothing, um, the practice of doing nothing, but also the importance of public space, um, and also an ethics of care and maintenance, and birds. <laughs> um, so uh, what was I doing in the Rose Garden in the first place? Um, I live five minutes away from it, so the Rose Garden um, had already been my default place to go to get away from my computer, which is where I do a lot of my work as a teacher and as an artist. Um, but after the election, um, I started going there every single day. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> um, this wasn't really um, a voluntary decision. It felt very innate, um, kind of like a goat going to the top of a hill. It's just something instinctual. Um, and I would just sit there and do nothing. I wouldn't even read a book. I would just sit there and do nothing. Um, and I felt a little bit guilty about it. It was sort of incongruous. It's a really beautiful garden, terrifying world. Um, but it really did feel like a survival tactic, like it was very necessary. Um, and this necessity is something that I found really beautifully articulated in this quote um, by Deleuze, which um, kind of shows that the, the function of nothing is that it is a precursor to something, um, that in order to be able to say something, um, to have the means to do that, you need to first do nothing or have the, the privilege to do nothing. Um, so nothing is not a luxury, it's actually the, the grounds for meaningful thought and speech. So I want to uh, backtrack by just saying that as an artist, I've had uh, a long-running relationship with nothing, um, in particular making nothing. So uh, I'm not lazy, but the, the only thing I can ever um, be said to have made or constructed um, is something uh, in a new context than it, than it was before. So um, this is from my uh, series, Satellite Landscapes. So this is photo-merged screenshots from Google satellite imagery with the ground removed. Um, and the sole purpose of this was just so that people would consider these things more carefully or at all. Um, I also did a project called the Bureau of Suspended Objects uh, as an artist in residence at a dump just an actual dump um, in San Francisco. Um, and I spent three months uh, photographing, cataloging, and researching the origins, manufacturing origins of 200 objects. And uh, this was presented as a book and a browsable archive where people could scan the tags of things and then learn all about their material histories, corporate histories. Um, and when I showed this at the, the opening at, at the dump, there was a woman who was really confused and asked um, me, she said, wait, do you actually make anything, or do you just put things on shelves? Um, and I put things on shelves. <laughs> That's what I do. Um, and then my most recent residency was at the Internet Archive, so archive.org. Maybe some of you have used it before. Um, and I was collecting specimens from 1980s Byte magazines. And specimens are um, things that I found that were intentionally or unintentionally surrealist in the ads in these Byte magazines. Um, I'm not doing anything to these images. Uh, I'm just taking out the text and sometimes dropping the background uh, back in or cropping them. 
but you know, didn't put that guy in there, <laughs> that tie. <laughs> um, that is just what was there. Um, and I had to add this one into like Rep California. Um, it's the gold, gold miner finding some computer chips. Um, and even in the cases where it was a little bit more labor intensive, like removing this stuff from this guy who's getting lost in various computer terms, um, it just felt more like historical restoration than anything else versus like making something. And these are interesting um, on some level because they seem to inadvertently predict some of the more sinister aspects that technology came to embody. Um, but I also just, more importantly, I just love them. Um, and a friend pointed out to me that that is a riding crop on the right. So it's implying that the computer is not only a cop, but a horse-mounted cop, which I, <laughs> I really love. Um, and this project really brought home for me that um, I really like finding better than making. Um, I like finding better than making so much I can't even be bothered to make things sometimes. Um, and this love of finding things and the things that one finds um, is something that I provisionally call the observational eros. So the observational eros is an emotional fascination with your subject that's so strong that it overpowers the desire to make anything new. Um, and I remember coming across this introduction to Cannery Row, it's a uh, Steinbeck novel, um, in high school, and it stuck with me because it describes the patience and the care needed um, to closely study specimens um, that are so precious and fragile that they actually risk breaking under the weight of observation. So it probably wouldn't surprise you to know that my favorite movies are documentaries. Um, and one of my favorite pieces of public art was made by a documentary filmmaker, Eleanor Coppola. Um, so in 1973, she carried out this public art project where she made a map uh, with 54 locations in San Francisco. Um, it took place um, on, a, on a specific day. Um, and you can see from the map text that um, she wanted to portray or sort of cast the city as art that exists already where it is um, that doesn't need to be removed to a gallery. Um, and I think that this is a really beautiful, so the, it's basically the windows. The windows are, are the art in this, in this case. Um, and this is really interesting to contrast with how, uh, what we normally experience public art as, which is like a giant steel thing that landed in a corporate plaza from outer space. Um, and in, in this case instead, um, yeah, the art, the art exists where it is. It is found, it is not made. Um, and then more recently, this is kind of a similar project uh, by a friend of mine, Scott Pollock. Um, it's called Applause Encouraged. Um, and so this took place in San Diego, and uh, so there were only eight attendees. Uh, they were ushered to their seats <laughs> five minutes before the sunset. They were reminded not to take photos. Um, and when the sunset finished, they clapped and refreshments were served. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I recently got to see this piece at the Walker in Minneapolis. Uh, it's a room by James Terrell where you can kind of just sit and um, contemplate this square hole in the ceiling. Um, perhaps some of you have seen this in, in other places. Um, and I went in there on uh, four days in a row, and the sky, obviously, was different every single day, so I felt like I saw four different skies. Um, but what I want to point out about this is the slant in the wall. So when you sit in there, um, it's kind of architecturally an invitation to look upward for as long as you want. You know, without straining your neck, um, you can just be in there for you know an hour. Um, so that brings me to the, the architecture of nothing. Um, those last few projects that I mentioned, the artist creates some kind of structure, like a map um, or a room, 
that holds open a contemplative space against the habits of familiarity that are trying to close back in on that. So um, this is something that I think about um, at the Rose Garden um, because it's not uh, your typical square rose garden. In California, there's a lot of just kind of boring square rose gardens um, with rows of roses, but this one has a lot of branching paths, kind of different levels, uh, different places to sit and view the garden from. Um, people move very slowly there for Americans. Um, <laughs> and uh, there's just a lot of ways to inhabit the space, a lot of ways to stay there for a long time. So sometimes I try to leave and I just end up sitting somewhere else. <laughs> so. Uh, and then not far from there, uh, somewhere that I often walk afterwards, is the Chapel of the Chimes. Um, and this is a, a columbarium, so it's designed by Julia Morgan, and uh, each room has hundreds of containers of ashes um, that are engraved with the person's name. And then a lot of them are sort of annotated with photos um, and tchotchkes and um, personal belongings of that person. So. Um, not only architecturally is it really easily, easy to get lost in there, but it's also very easy to contemplate some, the idea of life from beginning to end. And uh, I really am serious about getting lost in there. Um, this is one of my favorite parts of the Chapel of the Times, which is a map that has no you are here marking. <laughs> so uh, you're like, wow, it's really complicated. I have no idea where I am. Uh, I guess I'll just keep walking. Um, <laughs> Um, and labyrinths in general, I, I find really interesting, um, just because they are they are design, two-dimensional designs that manipulate your sense of space and time and how you move through them. Um, they're kind of like a dense enfolding of attention, um, and so you're not standing in one one spot and you're not moving through it, but you're kind of doing something in between. Um, and uh, yesterday, so I, was, I don't have an actual photo of it, but I, uh, I ended up in this botanical garden, um, and I, I noticed that even though it seems like it's this very kind of regular square thing, there's all these other like small paths in there, and people were, again, moving very slowly, smelling things, touching things, talk, pointing at plants and talking about them, um, and it's just striking to me how much that is, a, that is an architectural, it's a design thing um, that allows that to happen. Um, but it doesn't have to be a spatial thing. Um, it, there, one of my favorite examples of this in sound is um, the idea of deep listening, which was uh, part of the legacy of Pauline Oliveros. Um, so when she came up with this idea, she was teaching experimental music at UC San Diego in the 70s. Um, and she developed it as a, a way of working with sound that um, could bring, as she said, some peace amidst the, the violence and the unrest of the Vietnam War. So this is how she described deep listening in her own words, um, basically listening in every possible way to everything possible to hear, no matter what you are doing. And she distinguished between hearing, mere hearing, and listening, which is active. Um, and the goal and the reward of deep listening for her were a general heightened sense of receptivity to everything, um, which she noted was a reversal of the norm, which um, prefers kind of judgment over observation and intuition. And uh, reading about this, I realized that I um, have practiced deep listening before, um, just in the context of bird watching. Um, and I actually think that it's really weird that it's called bird watching, because if anyone here is a bird watcher, you know that uh, half, if not more, of that is bird listening. Um, so I think they should just change the name to bird noticing. Um, that's my opinion. But uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, it requires you to literally, physically do nothing. Um, 
All, you can't like make a bird come out <laughs> and identify itself to you. You have to just walk until you hear something, and then when you do, you stand under a tree, motionless for like up to 15 minutes, um, trying to figure out what uh, what and where it is. Um, and in my experience, this makes time kind of stop. It makes me late to things all the time. I'm very serious. It's like a problem. Um, so, um, so something that um, bird, bird noticing um, did for me was that it changed the granularity of my perception. So uh, at first, I just started being aware of just the presence of birdsong. Um, and then I, I specifically started noticing scrub jays, which are really loud, and I don't know how I didn't notice them before, um, and they sound like this. <laughs> really loud. Um, so, uh, and then I started noticing other songs like uh, ravens, robins, song sparrows, chickadees, goldfinches, towhees, hawks, nuthatches, woodpeckers. Um, and when I would walk into the rose garden, I would sort of acknowledge them one by one as I heard them. And this diversification of bird sounds into discrete, meaningful sounds um, is something that actually really reminded me of the moment that I realized my mom speaks three languages, not two. Um, She's only ever spoken English to me, and I, uh, I assume that when she was talking to other Filipino people, she was speaking Tagalog. And I don't really have a good reason for thinking that, other than I knew that she does speak Tagalog, and it all sounded like Tagalog. Um, and uh, it turns out that she was speaking three languages um, that are not, and the, the third one is not a dialect of Tagalog. It's a completely different language that has to do with where she's from in the Philippines. Um, and it turns out that the Philippines is full of languages that, according to my mom, are so different that speakers of them would not be able to understand each other. Um, and this kind of like embarrassing discovery that something you thought was one thing is actually two things, and those two things are actually ten things, um, is kind of naturally cumulative, um, and also just seems like a simple function of like the quality and duration of your attention and your receptivity. So something that those moments of stopping to listen um, and those kind of branching labyrinthine spaces that I mentioned um, have in common is that they enact some kind of removal from the habitual everyday. So for instance, the Rose Garden, when its location was chosen in the 30s, uh, it had to do with a natural bowl shape in the hill. So it kind of sits in the hill. And when you're there, you feel very acoustically and spatially enclosed. Um, the Chapel of the Chimes, even though it has a lot of skylights, that, um, or sometimes there's not even a roof, you can just see the sky, um, doesn't have a whole lot of windows to the outside world, so um, it also feels very enclosed. Um, labyrinths, just by their very shape, collect your attention into this small space. Um, Rebecca Solnit, uh, who's a Californian writer, uh, wrote about being in the labyrinth in the uh, Grace Cathedral as being so absorbing that she almost couldn't even hear sounds um, outside of it. Um, the James Terrell Room, this is kind of morbid, but I was, when I was sitting in, I was thinking about how it removes you from almost the context of your life because it, you're in the ground, it almost feels like a tomb. Um, but also just perceptually, the square, the, the holding constant of the square allows you to see how fast the clouds are moving in just like a very literal way. Um, and this idea of removal can apply to longer periods of time as well. So I think most of us have or, or know someone who has gone through some kind of removal, period of removal in their life um, that could have been occasioned uh, by something terrible, um, like a loss, or is, is just voluntary. Um, 
but uh, one of our most uh, famous observers in the US, John Muir, um, had uh, an experience like this. So before he was a naturalist, um, he was a supervisor and a sometimes inventor at a wagon wheel factory. So these are some of his inventions. Um, one of his scarier inventions was this mechanized desk that, would, that you could put your books into and it would show you the books for specified periods of time and then close them and then open up the next book. Um, like he was really serious about studying, clearly. Um, and uh, so that gives you the kind of idea, uh, idea of the kind of person he was. Um, and as a, as a young man, he was already very into botany, but it was kind of a side thing. Um, and when he was 29, he had an eye accident at the wagon wheel factory that temporarily blinded him for six weeks. Um, and he was confined to a darkened room, unsure if he was ever going to be able to see again. Um, and the, uh, the writings of John Muir is actually um, divided into two sections by the editor, one before and one after the accident. And in the second introduction to the second section, um, he describes how Muir decided that life was uh, too brief and uncertain and time too precious to waste upon belts and saws. Um, and my, my dad actually went through his own period of removal um, when he was about my age. He was working as a technician in the Bay Area, got extremely fed up with his job, figured he had enough savings to just not work for a while, um, and so he quit. Uh, he didn't do anything. Um, he moved to Sausalito, and I asked him what he did. This ended up being two years. Um, I asked him what he did during those two years, and he said that he rode his bike, studied math, uh, went fishing, had long chats with his roommate, um, and sat in this spot where he taught himself the flute. <laughs> um, and he said that after two years, he realized a lot of his um, outwardly directed anger had more to do with him than um, his job or outside circumstances than he realized, and the way he put it was, it's just you with your own crap, so you have to deal with it. Um, uh, but it also taught him about creativity. Um, he had a lot of time to think about that, um, and the, the state of openness and even boredom that it might require, and I'm sure a lot of you have thought about this a lot already, but it, it's, a lot of it's just time, um, the importance of time. So knowing this, he, went, he actually went back to the same job um, but he ended up becoming an engineer um, and racking up a bunch of patents because he was a lot more in tune with what he requires to be creative. Um, he and I are also very similar, so this is a typical text from my dad, who also loves uh, closely observing things. <laughs> um, we also really like blobs. Um, some blobs. Um, I, so this, um, this kind of got me thinking that uh, that granularity of attention that we achieve outward might also extend inward at the same time. So as the details of your environment unfold to you in surprising ways, maybe the same thing is sort of happening inward um, in your own intricacies and contradictions. Uh, my dad said that doing or having that time made him understand himself in relationship to just the world, not um, that world of his job. Um, and everything that happened at work was just one small part of a larger thing. Uh, this reminds me of how John Muir described himself, not as a botanist, but as a poetico trampo geologist botanist and ornithologist naturalist, et cetera, et cetera. Um, or Pauline Oliveros' uh, bio autobiographical statement from 1974, um, in which she is all of these things, among the other things that contribute to her identity. Um, and this has inspired me to maybe change my bio uh, to include 
the many things that constitute my identity. Um, so um, there's an obvious critique of all of this, and that's that it comes from a place of privilege. Um, I can go and sit in the Rose Garden all the time because I have a teaching gig um, where I only have to be somewhere twice a week, not to mention a whole host of other more general privileges. Um, my dad could do what he did because he had a reasonable expectation of getting a, another job. Um, so it's possible to understand doing nothing as just a self-indulgent luxury, um, the equivalent of taking a mental health day at your job if you're lucky enough to have, um, have that. Um, but I want to come back to the, uh, the right to say nothing as articulated by Deleuze. Um, I do think that this is indeed um, not a luxury and it is a right. So um, one really inspiring example is um, the, the movement for the eight-hour workday in 1886. Um, eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, um, eight hours for what we will. And I'll just point out that it's not eight hours of leisure or eight hours of education, it's what we will. That seems like a very humane refusal to define that period. Um, I'm also really struck by the quality of things that are associated with what we will. Rest, thought, flowers, sunshine. Um, these are all very bodily human things, um, and that bodiliness is something that I'm gonna come back to. Um, when Samuel Gompers was asked, what does labor want? Um, he answered, uh, it wants the earth and the fullness thereof. So that movement to me seems like very much a demarcation of time. Um, so it's very troubling to me to read that alongside a similar uh, uh, coincident decline in public space, um, which serves a very similar function. So true public spaces, like obvious examples being parks and libraries, um, are literally the underpinnings of and the space for doing nothing. Um, they don't demand anything for you to be there or for you to stay. Um, obvious difference from private spaces that you don't have to buy anything, you don't have to pay to be there, and you don't have to be pretending that you're gonna buy something. Um, so uh, compare something like a city park to um, city walk, which is um, a, uh, something that you encounter upon leaving Universal Studios in a, a couple of different locations in the US. Um, and it's sort of a faux, faux urban space. It's, the, it's Universal Studios interfacing with the actual outside world, so it's somewhere in between. Um, and uh, this space, uh, besides being basically a giant outdoor mall, um, functions more like a movie set in which the people are actors and, and also consumers um, who consume products and also consume a safe, sterilized version of a city. Um, and Eric Holding and Sarah Chaplin have uh, describe this as a scripted space. Uh, it excludes, directs, supervise, supervises, constructs, and orchestrates use. Um, sort of the opposite of a public space in that way. Um, and anyone who's tried anything weird in such a space knows that they don't just direct uses, they police them. Um, so in a public space, you are a citizen with agency. Um, in a faux public space, you are a consumer, or you're a threat to the space itself. So the Rose Garden is a public space. Um, it's also a Works Progress Administration uh, project from the 30s. So uh, it was built by people put to work by the federal government during the Depression. And that's something that I really like thinking about when I go there, that it's this immense public good that itself came from a public good. Um, but it's still really not surprising to me to find out that it almost got turned into condos in the 70s. Um, and that it took a very concerted effort on, on behalf of local residents to prevent that from happening. Um, and the reason that that doesn't surprise me is that that kind of thing is always happening. 
Um, those spaces that we don't see as commercially productive are always under threat, um, since what they produce can't be defined or exploited in an obvious way, despite the fact that anyone who lives in this neighborhood can tell you how, how much value this garden um, provides. Um, and I see a similar battle playing out for our time right now, uh, kind of colonization of the self by capitalist ideas of efficiency and productivity. Um, you could say that the parks and the libraries of the self are always about to be turned into condos. Um, and Franco Berardi, uh, in his book After the Future, ties the defeat of the labor movement, uh, labor mo movements in the 80s to this idea that we should all individually be entrepreneurs. Um, so in the past, economic risk was sort of the business of the, of the capitalist, of the investor. Um, but today, we are all capitalists. Um, we all, therefore, have to take risks. Um, and in this formulation, life itself, before anything else, is already an, an economic venture. And th this description of labor will sound very familiar uh, to anyone concerned with personal branding. It would sound familiar to Uber drivers, content moderators, freelancers, aspiring YouTube stars, or adjunct professors, <laughs> um, anyone who sort of doesn't have the, um, those securities and, and is um, imagined as units of time um, versus like a discrete um, employee. So uh, this removal of economic security for working people, the eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what we will, um, dissolves into 24 potential, potentially monetizable hours <laughs> that are not um, even restricted to our time zones or our sleep cycles. Um, and so in this moment when every waking moment uh, has become pertinent to making a living, um, and when we submit even our leisure to numerical evaluation on Facebook and Twitter, um, constantly checking on its performance like one would check a stock, um, and monitoring the development of our personal brand, uh, time becomes an economic resource that we can no longer justify spending on nothing because it's too expensive. Um, it provides no return on investment. Um, and this cruel confluence of time and space means that as we lose our non-commercial space, uh, we also see all of our own time as potentially commercial. Um, and just as public space gives way to weird faux public corporate spaces, um, we also get the idea of compromised leisure, uh, freemium leisure, <laughs> that is a very far cry from what we will. So as I was going through those Byte magazines that I mentioned earlier from the 80s, I came across a lot of ads like this that claim that they're um, going to save you time working. Uh, and this one uh, is the Power Lunch. Uh, I would like to point out that he's drinking milk. I find that really weird. Um, so uh, part of what's really painful about this image is that we all know what happened. Uh, we know how the story ends. It did get easier to work from anywhere at any time, all the time. Uh, so compare the power lunch with this ad. Um, this was in the Oakland BART stations. Maybe some of you have seen it in other locations as well. Um, if you don't know what Fiverr is, it's a microtasking site where individual entrepreneurs sell various tasks, so basically units of their time for $5 each. Um, whether that's copy editing, uh, filming a video of themselves doing something of your choice, or pretending to be your girlfriend on Facebook. Um, and these <laughs> individuals are the ultimate expression of Franco Berardi's fractals of time and pulsating cells of labor. Um, and this ad um, ridicules the idea that you would even withhold some of that time to sustain your body with food. 
Um, <laughs> so these people work from home, but unlike the sandwich milk guy, um, they must work from home. Home is work and work is home. Um, and this isn't, I think, limited to the gig economy. Um, after grad school, I worked for a very large corporation where I would amuse myself by taking photo booth photos with this cardboard cutout that I found in the office. Um, and <laughs> it's like the only documentation I have of that job. Um, and uh, they had just instituted this thing called results-only work environment. Uh, and the idea of results-only work environment is that there's no nine to five. You can do your work from wherever at any time as long as you get it done. Um, and it was like, presented as this great luxury. Um, and it sounded really nice, but there was something about it that bothered me, um, which was, what is the E in row um, if it's an environment? Uh, then your office, but also your car, your home, the store are all work environments. <laughs> um, and at this time, I didn't have a smartphone. Um, I was like a holdout. And I, I put off getting one even longer <laughs> because I, I understood what that equation meant and that I would just be on a much longer leash all of the time, 24 hours. This was our required reading. Uh, work sucks. Um, and it was <laughs> intended to be the kind of like a merciful slackening of the nine to five model. But in the text, the work and non-work selves are completely conflated. Um, so they write things like, if you can have your time and work and live and be a person, then the question you're faced with every day isn't, do I really have to go to work today? But how do I contribute to this thing called life? <laughs> What can I do today to benefit my family, my company, myself? Um, and to me, company doesn't belong in that sentence. Um, even if you love your job, um, unless there's something specifically about you or your job that requires it, I don't think that there's anything to be admired about being uh, constantly, potentially productive, uh, constantly connected the second you open your eyes in the morning and that no one should stand for that. Um, in the words of Othello, leave me but a little to myself. So this problem of constant connection and, and overstimulation is already a problem. Um, after the election, I think it became a very, very big problem <laughs> that I thought, started thinking about a lot more. Um, so those same means by which we give over our days and our hours are the same with which we assault ourselves with information and misinformation um, at a rate that is frankly inhumane. Um, and I'm not saying don't read the news and what other people have to say about the news, but I think we can all agree that there is a problem of quality and of speed um, and attention span that are all related. Um, so Berardi again mentions that modern regimes are not actually founded on the repression of dissent, but rather on this proliferation um, of chatter, the irrelevance of opinion and discourse, and on making thought, dissent, and critique banal and ridiculous. So the real problem um, is the informational overload and siege of attention um, and occupation of sources of information uh, by the head of the company. Um, <laughs> so this financially incentivized proliferation of chatter um, and the speed at which waves of hysteria kind of started happening online or had been happening online um, deeply horrified me and offended my senses and cognition as a human who dwells in human bodily physical time uh, the connection between some, something completely virtual and something utterly real, as evidenced by something like Pizzagate, or the doxing of online journalists, um, or having SWAT teams sent to their addresses, 
um, is deeply and fundamentally unsettling to me on a human phenomenological level. Um, and I know that after the election, a lot of people were wondering about uh, or searching for some idea of truth, but for me, it was also just about reality. So, birds. Um, <laughs> so, something else that happened after the election was that I started to notice a lot more uh, birds in my neighborhood. And uh, these were the first ones that really caught my attention. Um, these are night herons. I think that you might have them here, um, but not, they're not very common. Um, and they, they hang out by a KFC in my neighborhood, and they're there uh, almost every day and every night, uh, reliably. Because it's a KFC, I, I call them the colonels. But, yeah. um, also, my Twitter account is largely photos of these birds, just so you know. Um, and I, they have this kind of like grumpy, stoic uh, comportment. Uh, and like other herons, they do have a long neck, but they keep it a secret. They never stick it out, and they kind of stay in this football shape. Um, and I kind of without meaning to, I modified my path home from the bus to pass by them. Um, because I was reassured by their reliability. Um, and it had something to do with the fact that I could look up from whatever trash fire was happening on Twitter, and they would still be there, <laughs> unmoving with their pointy beaks, um, regardless of the weather. Um, and I actually found them on Old Street View. So this is in 2011. <laughs> They're still there. And I don't doubt that they were there before that, but it doesn't go back any further. Um, so I noticed them. Um, I also started noticing some crows in my neighborhood. Um, and I was paying attention to them because I had just read this book, The Genius of Birds. And it's about, uh, among other things, crows are incredibly intelligent and can recognize human faces and remember them for years. So um, I started leaving peanuts on my balcony railing. Uh, and I felt like a crazy person because nothing happened. And I just had these peanuts there. Um, and then after a while, they, like one or two would be gone, but I didn't see what happened, and was, maybe the wind blew them away. And then I, there started to be a, <laughs> a crow or two that would hang out, but not on the balcony, it would kind of back on the telephone line. Um, and it started coming <laughs> every day at the time that I eat breakfast, um, and it would sometimes caw to make me come out and put a peanut there if I hadn't. Um, and then it brought its kid. Um, and I know that that's its kid because the smaller crow had this like chicken-like squawk that sounded very undeveloped. Um, and I named them Crow and Crowson. Um, and I soon discovered that uh, Crow and Crowson prefer me to throw peanuts off the balcony so they can do these fancy dives off of the telephone wire. Um, and I don't, can't read crow minds, but I feel like they enjoy doing this. <laughs> um, and I obviously enjoy watching it. Um, and sometimes they don't want any more peanuts. They just sit there and stare at me. Um, and one time, Crowson kind of followed me halfway down the street. Um, and, and to be clear, I also stare back at them a lot. And I imagine that it looks very weird to my neighbors. Um, but again, like the night herons, I was just comforted by their presence, and I was also comforted by the fact that they uh, recognized me and that whatever it is that they do the rest of the day, that they always come by my apartment, still to this day, um, at 11 a.m. So, uh, and now there's three, by the way. Uh, that is either the other parent or a family friend. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and then this guy. 
So this is a scrub jay that lives in a particular corner of the rose garden. Um, scrub jays can also recognize human faces. Um, they also really like peanuts. And whenever I go there, I listen for that shriek that I played you earlier. And if I hear it, I will sit on a bench and put a peanut out and, and wait for this guy to come out. Um, part of the reason scrub jay, or one of the, some of the evidence that scrub jays are smart is that they can remember up to 200 locations where they buried a snack for later. Um, and if they see another bird looking at them while they do it, they will secretly go back and rebury it. So uh, it suggests that they have a, present, a theory of mind. Um, they understand the internal mental uh, reality of other birds. Uh, and one of my favorite things to watch is uh, scrub jay taking a peanut, uh, finding a good spot, hammering it into the ground with its beak, and then very artfully placing dirt and leaves on top of it to make it look like it was <laughs> never there. Um, so, like I said, this isn't just about uh, um, me watching, well, I'm watching the birds, but I also think a lot about what the birds see when they watch me. Um, and I think what they see probably um, is just recurrence day after day. They don't know what my job is and they don't know what my problems are. Um, they just see a human that gives them peanuts. Um, and through them, I'm actually able to inhabit that perspective on myself. Um, as the human animal that I am. Um, and when they fly off, I can also kind of inhabit that perspective as well. Uh, I started noticing the shape of the hill that I live on, the different trees that are on the hill, places, places that they would land. Um, there are some ravens that live half in and half out of the rose garden. Um, and then I realized that there is no rose garden to them. Um, so this kind of alien animal perspective on the world that I share with them um, unexpectedly provided me with this escape hatch from contemporary anxiety, um, but also just a reminder of my own animality and the animateness of the world that I live in. Their flights enable my own literal flights of fancy. And it recalls a question asked by one of my favorite authors, David Abram. Um, Do we really believe that the human imagination can sustain itself without being startled by other shapes of sentience? Um, and so, as strange as it sounds, this is what explains to me my need to go to the Rose Garden every day. Um, what was missing from that surreal torrent of information and virtuality is any regard or any place for the human animal, situated as she is in an ex experiential time and physical environment with other human and non-human entities. Um, it turns out that groundedness requires actual groundedness in the ground. Um, Abram writes that uh, direct sensuous reality um, is, is the sole and solid touchstone that, that we have as humans. Um, and reading this, I sort of grabbed onto it like a life raft. Um, this is real. The living, breathing bodies in this room are real. Um, I'm not an avatar or a set of preferences um, or some smooth cognitive force. I'm lumpy. I'm an animal, um, I'm different one day to the next. I hear and see and smell things that hear and see and smell me. Um, and I find that it takes a break, um, some time to do nothing to, rem to remember that, to remember who um, and where I am. So I wanna be clear that I'm not actually encouraging anyone to do nothing in a larger sense. Um, there's so much racial, environmental, and economic injustice um, to be very angry about right now and to be acted on. Um, there's a lot to be mourned that's already happened. 
Um, but ironically, I think that in, the, in this situation, it's even more important to do nothing because that's the time that we reflect and think and sustain and heal ourselves. Um, so I suggest that in this uh, time of extreme overstimulation that we cultivate instead of FOMO, uh, NOMO, <laughs> the necessity of missing out. Um, if you can't deal with that, NOSMO, necessity of sometimes missing out, um, whatever you can handle. Um, and in that sense, you could sort of file this whole talk under the heading of self-care. But if you do that, I want to be clear that I mean it in, this, in the political sense that Audre Lorde described in the 1980s, self-preservation as an act of political warfare and not in the way that it's been appropriated by brands. <laughs> um, and I think that we're all smart enough to make that distinction, but I just want to like, you know, put that out there. Um, but there's something else besides self-care, and that's that doing nothing teaches us how to listen. So I've already mentioned deep listening, but I think that um, in a general sense, doing nothing means holding yourself still for long enough that you can perceive what is actually in front of you. Um, myself included, I think we could all stand to learn to listen a little bit better. Um, and as, as someone who loves the internet and weird internet things, um, I don't want to write off the amazing culture and activism that happens online. Um, but filter bubble aside, the platforms that we use don't really encourage listening, in my opinion. They um, encourage shouting or having a take after having read a single headline. Um, and I alluded earlier to the problem of speed, but this is also a problem of listening and of bodies. So uh, Franco Berardi, who I mentioned already, um, he makes this distinction between connectivity and sensitivity. So connectivity is the rapid circulation of information among compatible units. Um, you can think of this as something like shares, something getting a lot of shares by a lot of like-minded people on Facebook, something getting a lot of likes. Um, in this case, you either are or are not compatible. Uh, red or blue, um, other, any other kind of categories. Um, and this often happens too quickly for anybody to really look into anything or question themselves or question the source of information or anything like that. Um, sensitivity involves a, diff a difficult, awkward, ambiguous encounter between two differently shaped bodies um, that are themselves ambiguous. Um, and this meeting and sensing takes place in time. It requires time. Um, and it's a complex transfer of information that might actually change the shapes of those bodies as they come away. So connectivity is a share, um, or conversely, a trigger. Um, sensitivity is an in-person conversation, whether pleasant or difficult, or a little bit of both. Um, and obviously, online platforms currently favor connectivity, not simply because they're online, but because um, arguably for, for reasons of profit, um, since the difference between connectivity and sensitivity is time, and time is money. So again, it's too expensive. Um, and as the body disappears from this equation, so does our ability to empathize. Um, Berardi suggests that the triumph of connectivity over sensitivity is making us deaf to everything that can't be verbalized in, in these signs that we now kind of um, communicate with. Um, Online, things that can't be verbalized are figured as excess or incompatible, even though we all know from human experience how much meaning can be carried by nonverbal expression, not to mention the, the simple fact of a body in front of you. Um, so self-care, um, also the culti cultivation of sensitivity. Um, those are two somethings you can get from nothing. 
Um, but there is one more, and that's the, an antidote to the rhetoric of growth. So um, in nature, things that, are, that grow unchecked are considered par parasitic or cancerous, um, and yet we privilege um, unchecked growth over the cyclical and the regenerative. Um, so I'm gonna mention really quickly some regulars of the Rose Garden. There's the casual turkey. There's Grayson the cat, who will sit on your book if you're trying to read it. Um, but there's also volunteers. Um, and so the volunteers are there maintaining the garden um, and to me are evidence of how much um, effort and care it takes to, to maintain something so beautiful and valuable. Um, and seeing them makes me think of um, something called the Maintenance Manifesto by the artist uh, Mirale Lederman Eucles. Um, some of her better known works involve uh, the one where she washed the steps of the museum that she was exhibiting in. Um, she also spent 11 months shaking hands with and thanking New York City's 8,500 8, sanitation men uh, and telling each one of them, thank you for keeping New York alive. Um, and so she became a mother in the 60s and she started thinking a lot about maintenance work and how, um, how much it was not valued and thought of as work. Um, and so she wrote this thing called the Maintenance Manifesto, where she makes a distinction between cyclicality and care and regeneration as the life force, um, and then the death, the death instinct, basically, which sounds to me a lot like disrupt. Um, and one is routinely valorized and masculinized, while the other one sort of goes unrecognized. So uh, that brings me to one last aspect of the Rose Garden. Uh, these are some plaques that I sort of discovered and... Um, upon looking closer, realized that they were the names of women who had been voted Mother of the Year by Oakland residents. Um, and to be voted Mother of the Year in Oakland, you have to have contributed to improving the quality of life for the people of Oakland. Um, this is from an industry film uh, in the 50s showing one of their ceremonies. And this past May, I noticed a lot more activity in the garden um, and it took me a while to realize that they were preparing for Mother of the Year 2017. Um, there are many more Mothers of the Year to come. Uh, it goes all the way up to 2050, so there's a bunch of empty spots. Um, and I just want to give a shout out at this point to my mom, uh, who has volunteered on top of working for most of her adult life um, and currently supports people with foster children. So, hi mom. Um, and I'm talking about mothers in this context of work that sustains um, and maintains, but I don't think that someone needs to be a mother to experience a maternal and caring impulse. Um, and thinking about maintenance for one's kin, however you define kin, um, always brings to mind this book called Paradise Built in Hell by Rebecca Solnit. And it's basically dispensing with the myth that people become selfless and kind of crazed in the aftermath of um, natural disasters. So she looks at things like the 1906 earthquake, um, Katrina, and shows the surprising compassion, sometimes even humor, but mainly just resourcefulness and connection that come in these very dark times. Um, some of her interviewees describe a strange nostalgia for that sense of connection and purposefulness that they had. Um, and so she talks about how after disaster people step up, become their brother's keepers. Um, that disaster is terrible, but it shows us um, maybe the people that we would like to be. Okay, I'm gonna skip through some of this. I'm sorry, I ran out of time. So, <laughs> all right. Um, all right, it's an epilogue. Very short. Okay, so you might be wondering what this means for me as an artist um, doing nothing. <laughs> um, I'm a digital artist, so um, looking back at my work, I can see that I use a lot of Google Earth, um, which is a way of looking, looking closely observing the Earth, even though it's from a digital remove. 
I think about the most valuable experience as an artist has been my physical interaction with objects at the dump, um, or even just the many hours that I've now spent in the Rose Garden, um, meaning to go get coffee and ending up on top of a hill somewhere. Um, three hours later, um, the, back, the fact that the, most of the books that I've read recently have been about plants and animals. Um, I don't know where any of this is going to end up or where I am going to end up. So as a thank you for listening to me talk about nothing, only to essentially have me tell you that I don't know what I'm doing, um, I'm going to give you a little bit of nothing. Um, so a couple years ago, I was on Caltrain. Maybe some of you have been on Caltrain, but it's what a lot of people in Silicon Valley used to get to work. So everyone on the train is working, very stressed out. I was very stressed out. I was feeling very confined by my own specific um, concerns and, and stresses. Um, but I happened to be listening to a podcast by Gordon Hempton, who's the acoustic um, ecologist that I mentioned earlier. Um, and he played a recording that he had made of thunder. And the feeling of listening to this thunder in the midst of everything that was going on um, gave me a feeling that's honestly very hard to describe. So I'm not going to. Um, instead, I will ask everyone to close your eyes. Thank you. Jenny. Let's talk. Oh, thanks. Uh, I have questions. Oh, you. I do. Uh, I have questions from myself, and I have some questions from the audience. Oh, OK. And Sorry, maybe if you're super fast, you can also uh, st still get something in. My first question is going back to the very beginning, uh, when you talked about uh, well, the granularity of attention, and uh, and this, and also actually at the at the end when you were talking about this self-care, this active kind of nothingness. How do I know if I'm new to this? Whether I'm being paralyzed or whether I'm doing political and meaningful self-care, or like, am I paralyzed with terror or doing um, great? I think most of the time I feel like both, like at the same time. I think you can. I don't know. I don't know if you can tell it. 
the difference. Um, I think it's important to, if you, I mean, regardless, if you feel paralyzed, that is a sign that you should stop, you know, and have enough time to maybe move past that paralysis. Yeah. I mean, just on a, on a collective level, I noticed in Oakland after the election, there, there was an interesting process that happened where people were paralyzed. I mean, they were still talking, and that was really important. But it took, you know, a long time before, like, the wheels got moving. But obviously, they, they got moving because of the support and the conversations that people were having, even as they were freaking out about not doing anything. Uh, the Stereo Associates, this is a Twitter handle, I think may possibly also a company, they would like to know what would happen if everyone spent 10 minutes meditating every morning. And if you want to question this, like, enforcement of meditation, you can also do that, but <laughs> yeah. maybe um, it's specifically meditating or maybe it's just, like, doing nothing for 10 minutes. I think that that would be great. I think things, I think what, a lot of it has to do with perspective. I know I've already told some people here this, but I recently visited a 25-million-year-old rock <laughs> um, in Oregon, and I just sat on it for a while and was just thinking about how insignificant all of my personal concerns were. Um, and I think that just, you know, spending 10 minutes can achieve some of the same, like, just getting perspective. Again, not to, like, there are real problems that need to be worked on, but just getting the clarity to know what, what to do first and what you don't even need to be worrying about, just on, like, a personal level. Hmm. Uh, we have some questions from Aral Balkan, who actually I think has been a speaker, or I know has been a speaker on this uh, stage. He said that you were talking about how the public spaces are so crucial, but online we have almost no public spaces at all, we, because a lot of the infrastructure, the context like Google and Facebook are of course private spaces. Mm. Uh, do you have any thoughts on this and, and how we should, should act on this? Um, I mean, I have some friends who are trying, who are much more technical than I am, who are really trying to um, create like more ry rhizomatic networks um, that are run, kind of like collectives that are more local. I think that's a really positive direction to go in um, that could be something more closer to a genuine public space. But I agree that as long as there are these kind of corporatized spaces, not to mention the total anonymity. I think that's like a really big problem as well, with just trolls and stuff um, that will continue to be a problem. Um, and he also wonders that this suggestion in, in contemporary society that we have to be companies of one, uh, what that does to our rights in a context where there are companies of literally thousands. Yeah, like, like I said, I'm glad that I had at least the experience of working in a giant corporation just to see that happening, but um, you know, I live in the Bay Area, I've been to various tech campuses, and um, I, I understand the desire to provide a lot of interesting and cool amenities to one's employees, but I find that incredibly insidious because it takes away <laughs> the boundary that you have where you are no longer at work, you are not your work self, you have, you know, it's what we will, it is like question mark, not, not of concern, you know, like what I do on my own, in my own time. So. Um, I think that, that again, it's probably everywhere, but especially in the Bay Area, I see this like creeping encroachment within corporations on that individual. And you everything know. you have will get eventually. Yeah. Alas. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So, so already that's a, problem, a problem, but now even more a problem. Still, can you see though that there, that it's also attractive that people would make these choices? Some people will 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 yeah. think about the whatever it was called, the work everywhere all the time ethos, and go, yes, I am free finally. Yeah, I mean, I guess if, you know, if you wanted to, <laughs> I'm not stopping anyone from doing that if, if they want to, but even then I, I would, 
even if your work was interspersed through different places and times, I would hope that someone would even just artificially make sort of barriers in time or space that where they're like, okay, this is just, I'm just being a human right now. Yeah. And I'm, even as you're saying that, I'm also realizing that actually, of course, also, then maybe the question you need to ask yourself is like, why, like, what is the underlying problem? Like, yeah. what is my relationship to this work? Why am, why, why maybe there's some so, other yeah. structural problem, like I'm not allowed to be a parent at the same time as yeah, having a job, exactly. for yeah. instance. And maybe then I shouldn't make the devil's bargain, I should actually fight for something else. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Uh, okay, uh, I think I have one, at least one question here. Yes, this is from uh, Anna Devdariani, Devdariani, sorry, who says, connectivity versus sensitivity. Can there be one without the other? So I guess we should talk about what connectivity means to you. Can there be a connectivity without uh, sensitivity? Um, maybe not, but I feel like in its, their, in its current configuration, I feel like connectivity or platforms that favor it, they hijack sensitivity. I think a lot of... I think a lot of us go to these platforms with very genuine feelings of wanting to connect with other people and feel like we're with other people um, and find those kind of, we don't ever really find it there, but we're constantly drawn there trying to find it, not to mention that that is generating ad revenue, which is a really big problem. Um, so I think sensitivity and connectivity might be connected in, in that way. Yeah. Um, I definitely think, yeah, I don't know. I they they. They do exist in a complementary sense. Like you, you can strengthen your friendship or relationship with someone on a social network, and then have a very meaningful friendship offline. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I guess they'll always be there, but I think the that connectivity gaining the upper hand all the time is the problem. Yes. Uh, oh, I have so many thoughts, but we are running out of time. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you Thank again, you. Jenny O'Dell. Thanks.